This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this edition of the program. We discuss the arguments for and against reparations in America. Should the federal government compensate African Americans for the lingering effects of slavery? What other forms of compensation, either at the local, state, or federal level, should be considered or not? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Few would argue with the statement that, quote, white people have disproportionately benefited from both the labor and legacy of slavery, and crucially will continue to do so for generations to come, close quote. Conservative columnist Gary Abernathy wrote this in an opinion editorial recently in the Washington Post. The question is, what, if anything, should be done about it in the 21st century? According to the Constitutional Rights Foundation website, opponents of reparations argue that federal and state governments have already spent billions of dollars on social programs such as welfare, subsidized housing, health care, affirmative action, and education, and that these programs have benefited African Americans. They say that slavery ended more than 160 years ago, at the cost of several hundred thousand lives lost in the Civil War. And it is unfair to ask American taxpayers, many of them from families that came to America after slavery ended, to pay for the wrongs of slavery. Advocates for reparations, on the other hand, reject these arguments and contend that the claim for reparations is not against white Americans or even individual Americans. Rather, it is a claim against American government and society which have perpetrated racist policies even since the abolition of slavery in 1865. The government at the end of the Civil War even reneged on its pledge to provide 40 acres and a mule to ex-slaves. Through slavery, African Americans were wronged and modern blacks were robbed of their inheritance, and they deserve to be compensated, say proponents. Gary Abernathy suggests that the gap between whites and blacks with regard to inherited wealth is striking. He quotes a 2016 survey of consumer finances that shows that median black household net worth averaged $17,600, a little more than one-tenth of median white net worth. Renewed interest in tackling the roots of racism and racial inequality is manifested by a number of efforts, one of which is H.R. 40, a bill which would for the first time create a commission to consider providing black Americans with reparations for slavery and a national apology for centuries of discrimination. Proponents of reparations differ on what form they should take and if they should be at the federal or local level. The New York Times says, quote, the bill before the Judiciary Committee would establish a body to study the effects of slavery and the decades of economic and social discrimination that followed, often with government involvement, and propose possible ways to address the yawning gap in wealth and opportunity between black and white Americans, unquote. Not since the civil rights movement of the 1960s has the United States begun to grapple with renewed focus on the legacy of slavery in this country. Just this month, President Biden established June 19 as Juneteenth National Independence Day, a federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. It had long been informally celebrated among African-American communities throughout the country. We also commemorated the centenary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the worst and until recently least known incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. From May 31st to June 1, 1921, Tulsa's Greenwood District 
also known as Black Wall Street, was attacked by a white mob, resulting in hundreds of deaths and thousands left homeless. Well, joining us to analyze the arguments for and against reparations are Professor Jennifer Ost. She is a professor and the chair of the Department of History at Bloomsburg University in the state of Pennsylvania. And Noah Millman, he's a political columnist at The Week, and both join us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. So Jennifer Ost, let me begin with you. As I said, there have been previous attempts to push for reparations for African-Americans since the Civil War. Are you in favor of a form of compensation, reparations for African-Americans? And if so, why and why now? Well, yes, I am in favor of reparations. And I think that they are long overdue. As you mentioned, when African-Americans were freed from slavery, we saw that they were freed with nothing more than the clothes on their back, that they were turned out after sometimes a lifetime of work with no compensation and attempts to give them compensation in the form of, say, land. And the mule could really stand for, you know, the implements needed to farm that land and be independent. All of that was turned down. There was very much a sense by Andrew Johnson and, and other more conservative politicians that they didn't want to redistribute wealth. And so we see that in this period, right after the Civil War, instead of African-Americans receiving you know, opportunities to improve their life, in fact, laws were put in place to try to keep them in a subservient position. For example, right after the Civil War, what were known as black coats were put into effect that limited their ability to hold certain employment, to hold firearms even. You know, many of these went straight against the Constitution, and a lot of them limited their economic opportunities. And, and a lot of these were overturned, but still we see through both legal means and extra-legal means, groups like the Ku Klux Klan, they would try to reduce opportunities for African Americans to get ahead even after slavery. And this continued right up well into the first half of the 20th century. So why now? I guess the question is why have they had to wait until now to get compensation for labor that just had never come? And so I think, though, another part of your question is why now are people paying attention to this issue? Well, I like to think part of it is because of the example of universities and church congregations that have lately been looking into their ties to slavery and are reaching out to the former enslaved populations, the black communities, sometimes the direct descendants of slaves owned by these universities or these churches, and they are leading the way. Georgetown is a great example, my alma mater, William & Mary, the University of Virginia, many others are trying to do something to make up for that legacy. And I think that's bringing attention to reparations, as well as writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote an influential piece in The Atlantic in 2014. So it seems like this is the moment, right, to talk again about reparations. How do you see it, Noah Millman? Is this the moment to talk about reparations? And where do you stand on the question? I don't think there's ever any reason not to be talking about something so important to American history. So I think you could point to a lot of reasons why this moment turns out to be such a crucial moment. I would personally highlight the fact that we had the first black president 
as the most important reason. I think there was a lot of expectation in a lot of quarters, particularly I would say in the center, that a milestone had now been reached and perhaps we were entering sort of a post-racial era. And I think a lot of the discussion around reparations and around a lot of other racial issues in the United States reflects a widespread disappointment with what the impact was of having the first black president. I think there's a lot of other reasons besides that. I'm not going to argue in the slightest with Professor Oates. I'm going to go with Jennifer. (laughs) Jennifer (laughs) Jennifer's history, because it's clearly the case. In fact, after the Civil War, I think the right way to think about the way redistribution of wealth was understood was that the expropriation of the slaves themselves was the redistribution of wealth. The white South understood that it had just been impoverished dramatically by having most of their capital taken away from them. And the largest political force at the time was trying to redress that loss rather than the hundreds of years of loss and oppression faced by the slaves themselves, which is a secondary consideration of that in most quarters. Where I come out on reparations is sort of, are reparations a way of resolving the trauma of the past, or are they going to turn out to be a way of perpetuating it and perpetuating an argument into the future? And I think that's where I see a lot of disagreement, even among people who are advocates for reparations. When I think about reparations, the two examples that I look to most commonly are reparations after the Holocaust and reparations for interred Japanese, Japanese American citizens, I should say. The utility of those examples is that you can point to very discrete harms in individuals that face those discrete harms. And the situation with reparations for slavery in particular, and I think reparations, potential for reparations for Native American nations look somewhat different in this regard. The difficulty is you don't similarly have discrete individuals with discrete harms that you can point to. You have a much larger multifaceted phenomenon of the impact of race in America. And I think the process of then turning that into a set of claims that would be compensated monetarily, I think is a much more difficult prospect. We don't have a registry of people who are the lineal descendants of slaves. And I think a process of saying okay, here are the people who can trace their ancestry back and we're going to decide who's in and who's out. And someone who's from Jamaica is not in, you know, someone who looks white but who has one sixteenth of the slave ancestor is in, I think would be potentially a divisive process. And when you talk about that with advocates of reparations, they'll tend to say, well, we're not just talking just about slavery. We're talking about the whole panoply of other forms of discrimination that happened afterwards. And I really just wonder whether reparations is the right framework for thinking about a process of addressing something so multifaceted. There are also vast inequities between different socioeconomic groups that don't map onto either of those. And in as much as we're a society, we have a degree of responsibility for each other. And I think that the modern tendency to say, well, if somebody is suffering, we need to find out how they were traumatized in the past in order to justify saying we should do something for them is a real problem. I don't think welfare is a form of reparations. I think welfare is a form of mutual assistance, and it should exist in some form, in a form that works effectively regardless. But I think the rhetoric around reparations pushes in another direction and tends to say, well, if there's a social problem, we have to trace it back necessarily to a specific harm in the past in order to justify a collective responsibility to address it. And I just don't think that's true. All that having been said, I would not consider myself an opponent of reparations. I consider myself someone who's a participant in the discussion and interested in seeing how it develops.
Well, thank you for that. And thank you also for bringing up reparations for Japanese American citizens who were interned in prison camps during World War II and were compensated. And of course, that brings us to the discussion of African Americans and to what extent they too should receive some kind of damages. But we'll get into some more specific arguments in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. My guests are Jennifer Ost, professor and chair of the Department of History at Bloomsburg University in the state of Pennsylvania, and Noah Millman. He's a political columnist at The Week, and we are discussing the debate over reparations for slavery in America. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. And please check out our new Facebook page, Current Affairs VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener, Arnold Law from Indonesia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our discussion and over to you, Professor Ost. Uh, We've spent quite a bit of time on the historical arguments pro and against uh, reparations, particularly for African-Americans. So let's take a look at some contemporary examples, just as you brought up in your own answer. You talked about universities and churches trying to make amends for their treatment of slaves, descendants of slaves. I want to check with you, where are we in the country now in terms of national polls? I saw a poll, I'm not sure how accurate it is, that maybe 20% of Americans agree with using taxpayer money to pay damages to descendants of enslaved people. What are the politics right now as you see it, Democrats versus Republicans and so forth? Well, I do believe that there's more support within the Democratic Party and probably also among younger members of the Democratic Party, among the youth in America, who in general tend to be more idealistic, no matter what generation we're talking about, whereas there's some more opposition among members of the Republican Party, people who are more conservative in general. But um, I'm even acquainted with people in my own family who count themselves as Democrats but are skeptical about reparations. And so I'm very familiar with the arguments against reparations and and even among people of goodwill. A lot of times they question, you know, who should be responsible. And they are hesitant to take on the sort of burden of guilt that because they're white, that there should be some sort of guilt or shame related to slavery when they don't feel like they have any connection to that. And and I think what a lot of those who call for reparations would say is this isn't about casting guilt or shame upon white society, but rather righting an injustice that occurred. Some of the injustice occurred a long time ago. Some of it's more recent. But as a nation saying, here is a wrong that we can identify and we want to fix it. I agree with a lot of what No Millman said, but he did try to kind of connect it to, say, poverty in the United States. And I mean, that's a very important issue to address. And uh, that could be a whole other discussion for another day. But I don't think we need to connect poverty with the African-American experience to justify reparations, even if African-Americans were comparatively well off. They still would be owed compensation for, let's say, the stolen labor of their ancestors or the lost opportunities that happened because of, say, redlining in the 1950s where, say, their grandparents couldn't buy property in certain neighborhoods. 
there's so many examples of ways they were disadvantaged economically. There are many very rich African Americans today. They would still be eligible for the reparations. It reminds me of a, a recent case. There was an art museum in the United States, and it was discovered that one of the paintings they had had been looted from a Jewish family during World War II. And they gave it back, the art piece, back to the descendants of the Holocaust survivors. Even though the art museum had nothing to do with the initial harm, it had been purchased by someone in the United States and then left to the art museum. But they returned it because it was the right thing to do. And it had nothing to do with the financial situation of the people who should have had the art. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if they yes. were rich or poor. Indeed. Well, Noah Melman, I'd like to get you to weigh in once again on, you know, where we stand here in America. Do you see a, a divide between Democrats and Republicans, young and old, even among African-Americans themselves? I'm sure there are differences of opinion. Where do we stand on the politics of this question? Yeah, so I, I agree with a lot of what uh, Professor Oates just said. And, and indeed, specifically, I agree with two things that she said. First, that you shouldn't conflate the questions of poverty and issues related to racism or what was owed to the descendants of slaves. Indeed, I think that was the point I was making, was in fact that we shouldn't conflate them, but that I think the reparations discussion sometimes winds up conflating them. When, for example, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey during the 2020 primary campaign talked up a proposal of his that I think is a really great one for baby bonds, which would be a non-race-based measure to help both alleviate poverty, but also help people build capital. And it wasn't constructed in any way as a way to compensate someone for any kind of past harm. But he nonetheless pitched it in a debate as a form of reparations. I think that reflects the way reparations has become an important touchstone for certain members of the Democratic coalition. But I think actually think politically and in terms of the reparations debate itself, it's a huge mistake. If baby bonds is a good idea, it's a good idea regardless of whether reparations is a good idea. And there's a lot of evidence that if you pitch ideas that are actually universal and actually beneficial to everybody as specifically race-oriented or reparative strategies, they become less popular. So I think on the politics and also in terms of really understanding what the reparations debate should be, these things can get conflated. I do think that among young people, it's more popular, but it is worth pointing out that at this point, reparations are about 50-50 popularity within the black community and are less popular when you go outside of that. The last thing I'd just say about the politics is that I think the entire United States of America, which means black, white, and everything else, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander, anybody who is part of the United States community benefited from the ways in which the United States became strong. In as much as we point to slavery as an uncompensated way that built up the capital and the strength of the United States, we've all benefited from it. And in as much as we're talking about reparations, we're talking about the United States compensating people who were injured in that process who didn't get paid for the labor they put in. It's not and shouldn't be about white people thinking we're paying for what we did to black people. It should be about Americans of all types as citizens compensating people who benefited America. And I think that's also something that sometimes gets missed in the discussion about reparations and probably makes it less popular. 
Well, that's a very good point. The black intellectual Coleman Hughes is opposed to reparations, not because he's opposed to the concept per se, but he just thinks that it would divide the country further. So there are differences within the black community as well. And it's not in any way to minimize the legacy of slavery, but that it could divide the country. So back to you, Professor Ost, as we conclude to talk about some concrete manifestations that we're seeing in the country. We're seeing, for example, in Evanston, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, the city council passed a reparations program for African-Americans, saying that this is a critical step in rectifying wrongs caused by slavery, segregation, and primarily housing discrimination. The Evanston City Council approved the first phase of reparations to acknowledge harm caused by discriminatory housing policies. Do you think that's an important first step? And do you think maybe if we start at the local level, uh, that that may be a way to address this question of reparations? Yes, I do. And I think that they really are leading the way in Evanston. And it's a great example for other communities and what can be done. I think something to admire about it, to a certain extent, is the narrowness of the scope, right? Evanston, as a town in Illinois, can't take responsibility for everything. But they did say, you know, we in this town can identify this problem with housing discrimination, and we can try to solve the problem. And they took the practical step of saying, we're going to use tax revenue from the legalization of marijuana, and we are going to put this into a fund. And then African-Americans who can prove they lived in Evanston in this period of discrimination can apply for funds that they can use to rectify the long-term economic harm of those policies. They can use it towards paying down their mortgage, or if they don't own a home, they can use it towards buying a home, or if they own a home already, they could use it towards, say, putting a new roof on. So it's not a perfect solution. It can't help every African-American in Evanston yet, but I do think it's a great example of this sort of grassroots movement. These movements by localities and by universities and church congregations, etc., this all will, I think, make the general public maybe more amenable to reparations or at least bring attention to it, because I don't think it's going to happen at the federal level until there's more widespread support for it. I'll give you the last word, Noah Millman, and that is exactly what Professor O said. This is not perfect. That is this example I gave of Evanston, Illinois, engaging in reparations for housing discrimination, but it's a first step. So I think that some of the things that Professor Ost sees as limitations are the things that I see as virtues, which is to say that reparations ought to be, uh, as I understand the term, a way of addressing a discrete harm in the past and concluding a claim. You've been compensated for that. Now that claim no longer exists. That shouldn't eliminate any of our mutual obligations for each other as fellow members of the same society. So I don't think a reparations program is supposed to solve all of our social problems. It is supposed to ideally be a discrete compensation for a discrete harm. And in that sense, the fact that the Evanston program is designed with a narrow length of time during which the harm is being assessed with a specific amount of money assessed to address it and limited to people who can trace their descent to people who faced that specific discrimination at that time makes in some ways a model of what a reparations program can be. If that feels inadequate to addressing the issues of disadvantage in the United States across multiple different dimensions, 
that's only to be expected, and it means that we need other language and other types of discussion to address those matters that can't all be folded under the rubric of reparations. Well, that's a very good point, and I'd like to conclude by saying that President Biden has positioned addressing racial inequalities at the center of his domestic policy agenda. He's proposed billions of dollars in investments in black farmers, business owners, neighborhoods, students, and the poor. And again, that's not really addressing this legacy of slavery, but it is at least a start. And I'm afraid on that note, that's just about all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my terrific guests, Jennifer Ost, professor and chair of the Department of History at Bloomsburg University in the state of Pennsylvania, and political columnist at The Week, Noah Melman. Thanks to both of you for your insights on this important topic. Thank, Thank you for having you. me. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. Mm-hmm.